Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the Gospel of John. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. Maybe because of my advanced age, I noticed something in the paper recently, Uh, and the the title of this article was, More People Are Ending Up up Six Feet Up, Not Six Feet Under. And this is from Daytona Beach, Florida. Ed Peck is in no hurry to get there, but when the time comes, he wants his last earthly stop to be consistent with his social station. So Peck, a real estate developer who made his fortune in Florida condominiums in the 70s, joined a small but growing number of Americans who have erected that most pharaonic of monuments to life and death, the private family mausoleum. A neoclassical structure of white granite, which cost about $400,000. Peck's mausoleum has a patio, a meditation room, doors of hand-cast bronze, and a chandelier. The family name is carved and gilded above a lintel that in the sales model read, Your Name. There's one with a name above it. That must be similar to what he's going to have. The mausoleum said, this is, this is a quote from this fella. The mausoleum says, I'm really significant in, the, in this world, and I think I'm really significant to my family, and this is one way to communicate that to the community. Said Nancy Lohman, an owner, along with her husband Lowell of the century-old Daytona Memorial Park and several dozen other cemeteries. Peck, an Atlanta native, framed a similar thought more modestly. It began to occur to me that I did not want to be in the ground, covered with weeds and whatnot, and totally forgotten. (laughs) Well, I got news for you. Unless you win the lottery, you ain't getting no $400,000 mausoleum. (laughs) We might build a new building and put you in the basement, but... Six feet up and not six feet under is increasingly the direction of which people want their remains stored when they die, say representatives of the funeral industry. <laughs> Prices range from 250000 well into the millions. <sighs> what are you looking forward to when you die? <laughs> I hope it's not a mausoleum, even if it costs $400,000. I hope you're looking to be in with Jesus. Turn me down a little bit. As we move through chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, we're going to hear Jesus tell us very clearly how we can be excited about our future after this life is over. Let's look at John chapter 5, starting in verse 24. Verse 24. 
John chapter 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, and they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. We're going to learn today about two resurrections, two judgments, and one choice. Two resurrections, two judgments, and one choice. As we think about the resurrections, the first one is potential. The potential resurrection. That's that's a great way to talk to somebody who doesn't know the Lord to say, you have potential for resurrection. (laughs) This resurrection that we're going to talk about, though, is not something in the future. It's something that can be immediate. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and in fact, it is here now, he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, we know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. He raised some other people from the dead. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those who are spiritually dead. This resurrection is the resurrection that happens at the moment you put your faith in Christ. It parallels the verse that we listened to a couple weeks ago on Easter from John 10.10, which says this, I have come that they might have life, and they might have it more abundantly. Until you have put your faith in Christ as your Savior, you are spiritually dead. You need to be resurrected spiritually. We're not even talking about the future physical resurrection yet. To put it in very common terms, you don't need an extreme makeover. You need a spiritual life. You don't need a change of scenery. You need the life-changing power of God. You don't need a fresh start. You need a whole new life from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that God made us alive through Jesus Christ. The resurrection that Jesus talks about, first of all here, is the spiritual resurrection that happens when you put your faith in Christ. This resurrection is not potential for me, it's realized for me because I have put my faith in Christ many years ago. And many of you have done so too. But if you're here today and you've never believed in Christ, you can do it even as you sit listening to me preach. You can talk to God, you can admit that you're a sinner, you can claim Jesus as the Savior, you can put your faith in Him and be born again. And this resurrection, this new life will be real in you. What a great privilege that is. That is the potential resurrection. And then there is the definite resurrection that Jesus talks about. This is the one that we're a little bit less familiar with in terms of the scriptural truth. Look at verse 28. 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. In other words, there's a future thing coming here. In verse 25, he said that resurrection is now, but there is a future thing coming. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all, all who are in the graves will hear his voice, hear the voice of the Son of Man, and they will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This resurrection is the reuniting of your body and soul either to eternal joy or eternal punishment. We're going to note several things about resurrection. The first is this, resurrection is universal. There are some religions that teach when you die, if you have followed their religion, you go to heaven. If you have not followed their religion, you cease to exist. A permanent ceasing of your existence. That is not what God teaches. God says there's coming a day when every person who has ever died will hear my voice and they'll come forth. Resurrection is universal. Secondly, resurrection is supernatural. For those of us who have known the Lord for some time, we understand this, but it's good for us to stop and think, wait a minute. When people die, there's all kinds of circumstances and even a lot of people today are choosing to be cremated, which is an acceptable choice. And so we think they're going to be resurrected. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? Could I be so, uh, so, so crude as to say, what do they look like when they get resurrected? Foolish one. What you sow or what you put into the ground is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one kind of flesh of men, another of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, that, that's things in the heaven and things on earth. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. The word corruption in the scripture means subject to decay. It doesn't mean corruption like, you know, you were dishonest and you took money under the table. It's not that kind of corruption. When your body goes into the ground, when your body is cremated, when your body goes into the ocean in, in, in a naval burial or wherever it is, it is corruptible. It is subject to decay. We all know that. That's, that's a fact of life. Uh, we, we understand that. It is sown in corruption, but when it is raised, it is fundamentally different. It is not subject to corruption when it's raised, which means it is going to be fundamentally different. It's not going to be the same. God is not going to reconstitute you like he did Lazarus. You know, Lazarus, you think how great for him to be raised from the dead. How about thinking about him dying twice? You probably thought, oh no, here I go again. But when you are raised on the resurrection Jesus is talking about, your body is going to be fundamentally different and it will not die again. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Now in particular in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection for the believer. 
And we're going to talk about both for the believer and the unbeliever. But this concept of being raised in incorruption or not subject to being decay is true for both the believer and the unbeliever. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Resurrection is supernatural. That is to say, it is not just a reconstituting of your physical body. Something will be different about your body in the sense that it will never dissipate, it will never go away again. The third thing that we understand is resurrection is eternal. No matter what happens to your body now, when it is resurrected and reunited with your spirit, the condition that it is in will be permanent. That's what I mean by the use of the word eternal. It will be a permanent condition. That condition will not change. As verse 24 says in John chapter 5, when Jesus talks about believers, he said, you will have everlasting life. Jesus not only tells us there will be a resurrection, but he tells us the result of the resurrection. And first of all, we want to understand the result of the resurrection for the believer. And the believer comes to a judgment called the Bema Seat. For the Christian, there will never be an evaluation as to whether he or she is fit for heaven there will not be a gate at the, at the entrance of heaven where St. Peter stands with a book and he says, let's see whether you've done enough good to get in. Jesus will not be standing there and saying, wait a minute, let's, let's take a look here at your life. You will not have to go to some other place to get scrubbed clean before you're completely fit to go into heaven. The believer leaves this life, and we'll look at this in just a minute, and he enters heavenly life and at some point in that heavenly life there will be a time called the bema seat or the judgment seat the word bema is the greek word that's used in second corinthians chapter five we're going to look at that in a minute and it was the seat where the rewards were handed out at the end of the olympic races it was not a seat of judgment as in are you qualified or disqualified or or any of that type of stuff, it was, hey, you've won the race, come up here and get your reward. For Ro in Romans chapter 8, we read this, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are not going to have to defend yourself before God as though you may or may not deserve to be in heaven. If you put your faith in Christ now, you are fit for heaven then. But there will be an evaluation with a view to a reward. So we are always at confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the Bema seat, the reward seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether they be good or bad. And this, this is enlightened for us in 1 Corinthians 3 when it says, 
For no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Now, you can imagine if you use a test of fire on wood, hay, and straw, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going to happen to the wood, hay, and straw. It's going to be consumed. What is the fire that God's going to use? I would assume it's the fire of his righteousness or the fire of his righteous gaze as he looks at your life. You know, he, God can see your whole life from beginning to end in one look. You know, he's not limited like we are. And when he applies his righteous gaze to it, all of those things that were sinful and selfish that we have done will be burned up. Those will be the wood, hay, and straw. But those things that we have done honestly and genuinely for God, whether it's the building of our own character or the serving of the body of Christ or reaching the lost, all of those things will survive the test of fire. They will be considered as gold, silver, and precious stones. And that will be the basis of our reward. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. Now, there's a disheartening possibility. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as through fire. You know what that's telling me? That's telling me there's some Christians that are going to get to heaven, and when God puts the fire, there ain't going to be much left. But God still isn't going to kick you out of heaven. Isn't that gracious? Now, I don't want to encourage you to live sinfully and say, well, it really doesn't matter. I'll just do my thing and I'll be one of those. You know, somebody's got it. You know, there's a bell curve. I'm going to fill that place up so, you know, Pastor Dave will look better, you know, or whatever. No. I mean, haven't you ever wanted to be recognized for what you do? Haven't you ever desired to excel? And I guess when you look at God... Isn't there something in your heart that says, man, look what God has done for me. I ought to be doing all that I can just to say thank you to him. The cool thing is, it's possible for you to earn God's reward. That's, that's just mind-boggling. That God would save my soul and take away my sin, put the life of Christ into me, Give me a spiritual gift whereby the Holy Spirit helps me. I mean, the only reason I'm able to stand here and teach the Bible, the only reason I am even in the ministry is because God wouldn't let me go. It's his idea, not mine. I didn't grow up thinking, oh man, I want to be a pastor. I want to be the big dog in some church, you know, and get all the glory and fame and money that goes with that. God just pulled me along and, and I finally said, okay. And, and as I have pursued serving him, someday he's going to say, thank you. I mean, that, that is just the coolest thing, and it's the most unfair thing. Because I don't deserve that. But that's what's ahead for me. I am not headed toward a judgment when God looks at me and says, you're too sinful. Get out of here. I'm not headed for that. That's taken care of. Jesus Christ has saved me and taken away my sin. But I am headed toward that. For the Christian, we are headed toward the reward 
judgment. Not the punishment judgment. That's a great privilege that's ours. But there is another result of resurrection, and that is this. The unbeliever receives punishment. Remember a minute ago I said the unbel- everybody's body will be resurrected and everybody's body will continue to exist. There will be no disintegration of anybody's body, period. But some of those people are going to be resurrected to an eternity of punishment. In the book of Revelation, we read about the great white throne judgment. And the first thing that we need to understand from John chapter 5 is that Jesus is the judge. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The identity of the judge is Jesus. And when we ask the question, why, what does this mean? that God says, I'm, I've given you the, the authority to judge because you are the Son of Man. What does that mean? Because he's human, he gets to judge? No, I believe it means it's a reference to Jesus being the king of the world. And if you're the king of the world, you can do what you want. And I don't say that facetiously. Listen to Daniel chapter 7. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Jesus used this term on purpose in John chapter 5 because he knew the Pharisees who were listening to him would recognize the phrase Son of Man as a reference to Daniel. Daniel had a vision of all of history from Daniel's day on. Daniel was several hundred years before the time of Christ, and he saw all of history. And here is the end of his vision. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Why does Jesus get to judge? Why does Jesus get to say, you are going to hell? You are going to heaven. Why does he get to do that? Because he is the king of the world. Now you may not like that. If you've been raised in America, you've been taught that everybody's equal and, and, and you're just as good as the next guy. And you know what? That's true in America. But there's only one God and he is not equal to you. And you are not equal to him. And he has the right to judge, and he has given that right to judge to his son as the son of man. Jesus is the king of the world, so he gets to judge. But the son of man goes one step farther, I believe. Jesus suffered for sin, so he has the right to judge sin. This is born to us in Philippians chapter 2. Who being in the form of God, or having the very nature of God did not consider it to be robbery to have the appearance and all of the glory that goes with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Therefore, because of his great obedience, because of his great humility in leaving heaven and going all the way to the cross and going through all of that suffering, because of that, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow or every knee must bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gets to judge sin because he paid for it. You owe him your eternal life. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, you owe him your eternal life. He has paid for your sin. If you have not taken advantage of his gift by putting faith in him, that's your fault. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But he has paid for your sin. There is no excuse for you to go to hell. If you're sitting here today, there is especially no excuse. And so when you stand before him, if you die as an unbeliever, when you stand before him, he will look right at you and say, I paid for your sin and you refused my gift. Go to hell. That is the prospect for the resurrection of an unbeliever. What is the basis of judgment? What is the basis of that judgment of going to hell? Look at verse 29 of John chapter 5. They will all come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation now that sounds an awful lot like works salvation like you better get doing some good and make up for all those bad things you've done because when you stand there he's going to say let's see let's weigh you in the balance and see whether you've done enough good to outweigh the bad that is not what it's saying folks listen to the book of revelation Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Do you know why they ran away? Because he was righteous and they're not righteous and they're scared. And there was found no place for them. There's no no place to hide. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. It it ought to scare you just a little bit to know, friend, if you have not believed in Christ as your Savior, that God is keeping record of your sin. Now, God has a perfect memory. And so I'm not quite sure why he needs a book, but maybe, maybe to prove it to you so that someday he can take the book and say, here, here, here's the record. You, 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 remember, uh, you, remember, you remember April 30th, 2006? Remember what you did on that day? Remember how you sat there in church and that guy preached the gospel and you said, Psh. remember that? You remember May 1st, 2006? God's got a record of every single thing you've ever done. Those are the books. And then there is another book. What's the other book? The books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. That's why when John chapter 5 says we're going to be resurrected, those who have done good will go to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the, to the resurrection of judgment. 
He's saying if you're an unbeliever, God has a record of your sins. And this book of life is there as well. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And the scripture goes on to say, anybody not found written in the book of life was sent into punishment. We have a little Satan saying here. We often say this, the only sin which will send you to hell is the sin of not believing in Christ. And, and that's, that's a pretty accurate statement. I think it could be a little more accurate to the scripture if we said it this way. It would be better to say that the ultimate reason people go to hell is that their sin has not been forgiven through faith in Christ. Because when you get to heaven, the first thing God, when you get to the great white throne, excuse me, not to heaven, unbeliever, the first thing God will look at is the list of your sins. And here's the difference between the unbeliever and the believer. When I get to heaven, God's not going to have a book of sins to look at. Not because I'm perfect, but because what happened to my sin? What? It's been forgiven, and it's been put how far away from me? As far as the east is from the west. So when God looks at me, he, there's no sin to see. The blood of Christ is covering me. Remember in the Old Testament, we've talked about a number of times, put the blood on the doorpost and when the death angel comes, he will pass over you because the blood is covering you. Well, the blood is covering me. So there's no sin to see. And so when God sees me, all he's going to see is good because I'm a Christian. Not good that earned me being a Christian. Good because I'm a Christian. But when he looks at the unbeliever, all he can see is sin. Because it has not yet been forgiven. The forgiveness is available, but it has not been received. It has not been taken to heart. What is the result of judgment? Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, again, some would think, well, yeah, I'm going to be cast in there. I'm going to get burned up. No. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, all have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. But now listen to what we learn in Mark that helps us to understand this place of fire. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. It's an eternal kind of fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is an eternal characteristic of decay that's the worm and pain that's the fire an eternal characteristic of decay and fire hell is an everlasting place of decay and pain remember your body is resurrected into a permanent existence either a permanent existence in heaven or a permanent existence in hell at my advanced age. I can relate to the comedian that I saw on TV last night who talked about making noise when you get into bed. You know, it's, uh, 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 you know, trying to get just right so nothing hurts. Can you imagine living for eternity 
in pain and torment. That's what hell's about. And as we're going to look at some scripture when we get to the Louisa house, we're going to look at the same concept over there. If we were to look at the, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man not only had the physical pain of the fire, but he had the regret and the remorse of knowing that his family was coming to join him. Which means there will be a, could I say, a spiritual kind of pain that will be eternal as well. I've made a couple charts maybe to help you, those of you who are more visual learners than uh, whatever the word is, word learners, to get a picture in your mind. And I put the cross there because what I'm talking about is the New Testament era. We could talk about some different things in the Old Testament. It would be similar but not the same. Since the cross of Christ, when an unbeliever dies, their body goes to, and I've just chosen to call that disintegration. I know your body doesn't completely disintegrate. It is possible for it to get vaporized in certain kinds of explosions and so on, but some kind of decay, some kind of disintegration. And the person goes to punishment in hell. Punishment is something you're not waiting for until this future time when Christ comes back. You go to punishment immediately. And then there is the resurrection and the resurrection would be when your soul and body are brought together. During this first time period, until you are resurrected, you just suffer, if you will, as a spiritual entity, as a person, but your physical body is not part of that. And, and so you are resurrected, which means your body and soul, your body and person are reunited, and you go to what we just read about, the great white throne judgment. And understand, friend, those of you who never believed in Christ, nobody, nobody will go through the great white throne judgment and then make it into heaven. The great white throne judgment is what we might call the, the execution of, of the sentence. In our court system today, you can be convicted and sentenced, but you don't actually enter into punishment till a, second, till a subsequent time when they say, okay, now you're going off to the federal prison. That's what happens here. The, you are subject to punishment and then resurrected and the formal execution of sentence, which is you are going to hell forever. Away with you, I never knew you. Now for the Christian, there's a much brighter future. When you die, the scripture says your body goes to disintegration, but God calls it sleep. Do you know why he calls it sleep? Because there's something great coming. Your body's going to wake up. Your person... And I like to use the word person more than soul because you need to understand, friend, you are a person who lives in a body. You, the person, you, you are eternal from the moment you, you were born. Your body is going to go to the ground temporarily. And then at that time that we call the resurrection, that 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us about, Jesus is going to come with all of the other believers with him. And those who have died in Christ will rise up first. And what, what rises up, of course, is your body is resurrected, reconstituted, and reunited with you as a person, and then the rest of us who are alive and remain, our bodies are changed, and boom, we're with the Lord forever. And from that moment on, you exist again in a body. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. And then at some point after that, we come to this reward time, the Bema Seat Judgment, when God recognizes us. 
When our kids were in grade school, my wife used to be the communication referee at the dinner table. And as it seems to happen with children, before long our discussion would touch onto subjects which the referee deemed inappropriate for the dinner table. And it wasn't infrequent for her to say, can't we just have one meal where we don't talk about any of that stuff? And we'd all be duly reprimanded for about 30 seconds. I, I don't really care to talk about hell. I'll be honest with you. I'd much rather talk about heaven. I'd much rather talk about going to heaven. Some of you are here for the first time and think, oh, Lord, have mercy on me in one of those hellfire and brimstone Baptist churches. Well, yeah. We don't preach about it every Sunday, but frankly, this is what Jesus said, not me. And the reason, while I will say I really don't like to talk about hell, I don't mind, because you know what? It's so easy to escape. It is so easy to escape. Look with me back at John chapter 5, at the one choice. I told you we were going to talk about two, two resurrections, two judgments, and one choice. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and he shall not come into judgment. But he's passed from death into life. Eternal life starts at the moment you accept Christ. That spiritual resurrection takes place. A new life is put within you. You are a new person in Christ. The thing that I want to share with you today that is so incredible is what I've chosen to call the constant invitation of Jesus. Over and over, he invited people to escape judgment. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. These are just four occurrences of Jesus saying, come on, escape hell, go to heaven, come on. I mean, he's like the, uh, you know, the, the conductor on the train or somebody going, come on, come on, we're getting ready to go, come on, come on. And he just keeps flagging people in, come on. How much more can he do? It's a constant invitation. It's constant here. Christian friend, when you're talking to folks who don't know the Lord, you need to make sure they understand that. That Jesus constantly and consistently invited people up. He said, I didn't come to condemn people to hell. That's not the purpose of my coming. I'm coming that they might be saved. The clear invitation of Jesus. It's not only a constant invitation, it's a clear invitation. And it revolves around the word believe. It revolves around the word believe. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though 
though he may die, he shall not live. We have a little booklet we use around here called How to Get to Heaven from Ferndale. And uh, Pastor Larry has written this and he's put different names of towns wherever he's lived on it. We have some over here uh, in our bookstore area. And, and he identifies four words that are associated with coming to Christ. The first word is repent. To repent means to change your mind. You need to think differently about you and Jesus. That probably involves you saying, I am a sinner and I can't do enough good deeds to earn heaven. Jesus is the Savior. I must embrace that. I must accept that. I must believe it. You have to change your mind about yourself, your sin, and about Jesus. You have to confess. That means to agree with God about your sin and Christ's sacrifice. You have to receive the gift of salvation. You need to believe in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Salvation is not about good works or good character or good intentions. It's about Jesus taking away your sin and giving you a new life through your faith in him. Not only is the invitation constant and clear, but the invitation is insistent. It is, it is immediate. Look at verse 28. You know who Jesus is talking to when he says these words? He's talking to people who did not like him. People who had already decided they were going to try to kill him. And what does he say? Do not marvel for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the voice and they will come forth. And he has just invited them to believe, and he says, now this day is coming, it's going to happen. See, temptation, humanly speaking, would be to think, let's see, those people really don't like me that well. So I'm going to say, you know what, you've got so much time. You just go home and think about this stuff, and you know, if, if it suits you, come around to faith in Christ. That's not the way Jesus talked, was it? That's not the way we talk. Listen to these verses from elsewhere in the New Testament. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a while, for a little time, and then it vanishes away. We had a fine Christian man here, Karen McCarty's husband, Lloyd. And when I think of the, the unsurety of life, I think of him because he was a truck driver till he was like 70. He was driving a truck from here to California till he was 70, and he stopped driving the truck, and he was you know, around a little bit, and they traveled a little bit. Next thing you know, he's in the hospital, died of a heart attack. Now, thank the Lord, Lloyd knew where he was going. He told me so from his bed in his hospital, and that's so exciting. But I just want to say, friends, you might be in perfect physical health or, or appear to be strong right now and be dead tomorrow. You do not know what a day holds. That's why it's so important to come to faith in Christ now. Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. Once the, once the death time comes, it's done. It's a done deal. The conference we were at a few weeks ago, you know, with our church association was in Reno. 
And the reason for that was it was centrally located. There's a whole bunch of reasons, you know. And the hotel we stayed in was a casino. We had to walk. They, they designed the casino so that you have to walk kind of through before you get to the elevators to go up. There they are, rolling the dice. Obviously, assuming if they just keep rolling the dice enough, they've got to win sooner or later. Nope. <laughs> got news for you. Those casinos were not built on losing odds. Is that what you're doing with your life? I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep doing it. I, it's got to work out. I, I, I think I'm going to hit it. Well, I just want you to know that is that you're rolling the dice. You're not on a good footing, and, and the odds are you're going to lose. Now's the day of salvation. Ah. Oh. You know, I, I, it's not my goal to scare you into heaven, but I wouldn't mind. There is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And that's what Jesus was telling these folks, saying, look, folks, judgment day is coming. And if you don't take care of it now, it will not work out for you later. One of the authors that I read this week put it this way, the two resurrections remind us that we are responsible people. Life is a wonderfully joyous affair, but it is also wonderfully solemn. It is a one-way street. We cannot go back and do anything over. We get just one shot at it. Did you take note of the title of my sermon? I called it spiritual palm reading. A spiritual palm reading. You know, I, I've never had my palm read by a professional. You know, in grade school, you know, you take the pen and fool around with all that stuff. And, but there's this belief that some things in your palm are indicators of things in your life, in particular one called a lifeline. And if it's long, then your life will be long. And uh, I hope that... Uh, that's not what you're placing your hope in. My grandfather had another way to tell the future. He read the tea leaves. You drink the cup of tea, and when you're done, you turn upside down on your saucer, and you leave it set there for a while. And after you're done, you, you, you turn around and, and you read the tea leaves. Now, there are some people who really believe in that. My grandfather, he just liked to you know, pull people's leg a little bit, you know. Reading the tea leaves. I hope you understand that the length of your so-called lifeline or the shape of the tea leaves is not going to tell you anything about your future. But I can read your spiritual palm. And here it is. Turn it up to me. Does it say there was a time in your life when you put your faith in Christ as your Savior? And was that faith in Christ demonstrated by your, by your godly life so that we know that it's real according to the scriptural standard? Because if that's the case, your lifeline's got no end. It's going to be heaven forever. But if I look at your palm and there's no day, there's no time, and, and maybe you can't look to a specific day and time, but maybe you could look and say, you know what, Pastor Dave, I, I don't remember when I started to believe in Christ, but I know today I believe in Jesus as my Savior, nothing else. I'm not trusting my good works 
to get me to heaven. I believe in Jesus. I'm not trusting in church membership. I'm not trusting in baptism. I'm trusting in Jesus. If that's in your palm, we'll be together forever. And I would just invite you to have it. In the notes that we put in the bulletin, I always put a little bit of homework on there. If you're a Christian today, I've got some other homework for you to do. And that is to meditate on 1 John 3, 2. Because in 1 John 3, 2, he says, when we see him, we will be like him as he is. We will see him when we see him. We will be like him for we will see him as he is. And then in verse 3, he says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. You're going to meet Jesus. When I went to this church conference, I went to the store and bought a couple new pieces of clothing so I would be appropriately dressed and know it was not a suit and tie, it was some other things. I wanted to look appropriate, I wanted to look the part, you know, whatever. When I meet Jesus, I hope it to be in righteousness. And that's what 1 John 3, 3 is about, is saying, look, you need to prepare yourself. You're going to see Jesus face to face, Christian. You need to purify yourself. I would challenge you to meditate on that this week and to ask God if there are areas of your life that you have not purified, that you have not worked on, that need to be made ready for meeting Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great prospect that's ahead for us. We're so excited to be on our way to heaven. We're excited to not be on our way to hell. And Father, we just, we just want that for our friends, especially those that are sitting here today and, and for others who, who live around us or work with us. Help us to be jealous for them with a godly jealousy. Make heaven and hell real to us, Father, and change our lives by it. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360 384 3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's word will give you hope for life.